Our message this morning is entitled, Forgiveness in an Eternal Sense. Forgiveness in an Eternal Sense. And most of what we discuss today will be taken from the book of Luke chapter 7, but we're going to spend just a little bit of time getting to Luke chapter 7. So if you want to go ahead and turn there and have that portion of Scripture ready to be considered in your Bibles, we'd encourage you to do that. But we will consider a few passages before we get to that place. I want to do something that's a little bit different as I begin my message this morning. Usually we conclude the message with prayer, but I'm going to begin my message with prayer this morning because I know that there are so many folks that we know and love that are dealing with problems right now, and if any of them watch, I want them to know that we're praying for them. We've had several prayers this morning already, and you know this is to be a house of prayer unto all nations when there's trouble in the world our first response is to be prayer. Sometimes the last thing we do is to pray because we try everything first, but the first thing that we need to do in troubles is pray. And so one more time this morning, I want us to go to the Lord in prayer. And so let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, in the middle of a, a troubling time as this new variant of this virus has flared up in so many places. And Lord, it was just a couple of weeks ago that life everywhere felt like it did before, and here we have news of the hospitals tripling in patients. We personally know so many people who are dealing with it, Lord, and we just ask, Father, that you would say to this storm, peace be still. Father, if this is judgment and we need to repent, then dear God, burden us that we would turn from our sins, cause us to hit our knees and to weep and to beg that you would forgive us for the things that we do that are wrong and help us to turn from that. Lord, we pray that you would just be kind to us. We know, Lord, that you love your people, that you love us, that you care for us, that you're our shepherd. We know sometimes as your sheep we can be stiff-necked and rebellious, uh, rebellious. So, Lord, just gather us, pull us to your fold, give us grace to repent. Lord, we, we know so many times that judgments are given to this world, and throughout even all of that, we know that your people are kept secure in your hand, even if they lose their lives in this world, as they breathe out their last breath in this world, immediately they're in your presence. So we thank you, Father, that no matter what we experience in this world, that after this life we'll be with you in glory. We pray, Father, for healing for those that are dealing with sickness, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name, and we say together, amen. So this morning, I'd like to share some thoughts with you on the subject of forgiveness from a biblical perspective, specifically forgiveness as it relates to our standing with God, our eternal state. When God looks at us, is he offended at the things that we have done that are wrong, or have we found forgiveness in him? Now, we hope to consider next week forgiveness from more of a practical perspective, how we ask for forgiveness over and over in our lives, and how God, as our Father, dealing with us as sons and daughters, is kind to us and is merciful to us and gives us strength and gives us healing. But before we can spend any time discussing the way that we find forgiveness as a child of God, we first need to understand the forgiveness that we have in God's eternal courtroom through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, up front, we say that this is one of the most prevalent concepts in Scripture. This is 
the concept of the Word of God. If you wonder what the Word of God is about, it's about forgiveness of sins through our Savior, Jesus Christ. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, all the way back in the book of Genesis chapter 3, one of the first things, in fact, the first thing that God promised was that his son, the seed of the woman, born of a virgin, would come into the world and crush the head of Satan. That the death and destruction that the wicked one had brought into the world would be undone through the coming of the Lord's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save God's people from their sins. Throughout Scripture, this concept of forgiveness occurs over and over. Many of the laws in the Old Testament pertained to forgiveness. You had offerings and sacrifices that were made to God as an atonement for sin. You have the imagery of the scapegoat, a goat that is slain for sin, another goat upon whom the sins of God's people were imputed and it was let out into the wilderness, never to be seen or heard from again. All of that pointing to the fact that our Savior Jesus Christ would take away our sins and once our sins are taken away, they are forever separated from us in the sight of a holy God. Now, as we get to the practical implications of that today and what that feels like on our heart, just understand that as we come to him weeping over our sins, he speaks to us and the message that we always hear from him is, Thy sins be forgiven thee, go and sin no more. Your Savior never says, I've had it with you, I'm done with you, your sins have finally done it this time, but... We have through the imagery of the Old Testament, the explicit teaching of the New Testament, the examples of the interactions of Christ and sinful people over and over again, this beautiful fact revealed that Christ forgives sinners of whom I am chief. Think about in the Old Testament how some of the imagery is of our sins being drowned in the depths of the sea. Or the fact that our sins have been separated as far from us as the east is from the west. If you take out a globe and you look at it, you know there's no place on a globe where east and west meet. But they're infinitely far apart on a globe. And so our sins through Christ have been separated from us as infinite as east and west are as they strike out in different directions upon the globe. Our sins have been taken from us forever. This is one of the most prevalent concepts in Scripture. It's also one that remains at the forefront of the minds of those who know the Lord and feel the sting of sin in their conscience. And one of the things that we're going to talk about today as we begin looking at an example of one particular person in the New Testament who was burdened with her sins is the fact that when we are changed by the grace of God, because the laws of God are written on our hearts, we now lament our sins. The new birth makes a real difference in the life of a person. Now, the concept that 
Once you're born of the Spirit of God, you don't have trouble with sin. You're a super saint. You get more and more holy throughout your life. That's simply not true. We struggle with sin each and every day of our lives. We do not automatically grow in grace. It takes work. It takes discipline, which is why the followers of Christ in Scripture are called disciples. That concept is commonly referred to as lordship salvation, that if you're really a safe person, you're going to get more and more holy There's so many people in the Word of God that were God's children that made shipwreck of their lives through sinful choices and come to the conclusion of the matter and lament, lament that they are not as close to God as they were earlier in their life. But at the same time, and you listen very clear, listen carefully, when you are born of the Spirit of God, a real permanent change happens in you. The laws of God are written on your heart. You are made partaker of the divine nature. You now possess as a part of your overall personality the character attributes of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. That is a part of who you are after the new birth. And that is never undone as long as you live in the world. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You are alive in Jesus Christ and the life that you have in Christ is eternal. And so you are not the same as you were before you were born of the Spirit of God. As a part of being born of the Spirit of God, as a person who's been born of the Spirit of God, God's laws have been written on your heart. Now, in the Old Testament, there's a very famous collection of commandments. How many of you could guess how many commandments we're talking about? Somebody said ten. Everybody say ten. Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, we learn some things that God expects of human beings. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not commit adultery. To remember the Sabbath, to have no graven images, no gods before us. We're to worship only the true and living God. To not covet the things that our neighbor has. We're not to lust after things. There are ten of those commandments, and they summarize and encapsulate... All of the other sub-commandments that we find in the Old Testament law. When you're born of the Spirit of God, instead of merely hearing those commandments externally as they enter your ear, okay, God says it's wrong to murder, so I guess it's wrong to murder. The law is being written on your heart. In here, you know it's wrong to kill somebody. You know it's wrong to steal You know it's wrong to lie. You know it's wrong to commit adultery. And might I just say that that is any sexuality outside of the bounds of marriage. We don't shy away from that here. We need to understand that in America today. We know in here that it's wrong and we lament it when we find ourselves engaging in those things. Now, you you might think, I've never stolen anything. I've never... I've never committed murder. Show of hands. Anyone in here ever commit murder by literally killing someone? No hands. I thought surely maybe a deacon or somebody, but anyway. We know from the heart that it's wrong to do those things, but point in mentioning that according to Jesus and the way he defines 
His law to hate someone without a cause is to murder. To think a lustful thought about another person is is to commit adultery in our heart. And so we've all broken these laws. That's why when we merely think things that we shouldn't think, we feel this sting of sin in our conscience. I should not have done that. Now, as one who possesses a conscience, as I'm sure you do, it might be foreign for you to realize that some people do not operate that way. They do not feel guilty when they take a life. They do not feel guilty when they lie. They do not feel guilty when they sin with the person in a physical sense. You know what I'm talking about? They don't feel guilty. Why? Because God has not quickened them. And for many of them, I believe God has not quickened them yet because God will save each and every one of His. He will change their heart if they belong to Him. We feel the sting of sin in our conscience, and so forgiveness stays at the forefront of our minds. The word forgive means to remit, to give up a claim to something, to pardon, and also to give up resentment. And as we think about it from our standing with God today, and also as God's children, how He deals with us and we ask for forgiveness and cleansing every single day, That last definition, to give up resentment, is going to be very important. Is my behavior such that God resents? That's a stinging thought. This morning we want to consider the most crucial context in which we find this word used, one context, as it deals with our eternal standing of God. Just to give you a few scriptures to lay some groundwork, you know, we have to give you at least a a half hour's preface. That's the rule here. Now, keep your finger in Luke chapter 7. We'll be there in just a moment. Our only hope of forgiveness before God is through His Son, Jesus Christ. There's a hymn in our hymnal that goes through the experience of that hymn writer. He was a proud person that believed he had no problems in his life. Hell, sovereign love that first began the scheme to rescue fallen man is the first line to that particular hymn. He feels himself doing okay in the world. He thinks he's doing all right. And all of a sudden, God's grace changes him. He is changed. He sees his sin. And immediately in the hymn, the first thing that he does is he runs as quickly as he can to Mount Sinai. Now, where is Mount Sinai? Well, it's the name of a mountain over in the Middle East, and truth be told, it's probably not the real Mount Sinai from the Old Testament. There are a few different contenders through history for what Mount Sinai really is. But Mount Sinai is the mountain on which God gave Moses the law. When we feel the sting of sin in our heart, one of the first things that we instinctively do is run to the law. We run to the works of the law to justify ourselves before God. I suddenly realize that I'm a sinner. I need to run to self-righteousness. I need to try to do enough good works to remedy this and alleviate this problem. I feel the burden of guilt And yet, as that hymn says, as the Word of God says, and as our experiences say, there is no rest at Mount Sinai. In fact, all Mount Sinai will do is condemn you. The law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. 
It's our schoolmaster to teach us that there's nothing that we can do to earn our eternal salvation. But we find ourselves condemned by the law that we run to for justification. There is no hiding place in Mount Sinai. And as that hymn continues, mercy's angel's form appears and points the hymn writer to the one who can truly bring forgiveness, the one whose grace had arrested him, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.7 says, "...in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace." Now, there's so much in Ephesians chapter 1 that we could spend weeks unpacking before you. We find that we've got blessings that are given us by the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. All spiritual blessings in heavenly places are given to His people in Christ. We find in verse 4 that these people in Christ were chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world, that they should be holy and without blame before Him in love. God set their destiny before the world began to be adopted as children by Christ, as we read in verse 5. This isn't because of anything they've done, but to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. And then we find in verse 7 this statement on forgiveness. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Christ shed His blood, and in shedding His blood has washed you whiter than snow. Your sins had polluted you, and He has cleansed you by the shedding of His own blood. Wherein He hath abounded towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure which He has purposed in Himself, that what? That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Things in the earth, things not on the earth, his children in glory, his children here. There's coming a day, and this is a mystery of God from the foundation of the world. God will have all of his children gathered with him when this world is destroyed. You follow the chain of events in Ephesians 1 and you find... God's purpose for you before the world began. God's purpose in saving you by His Son upon the cross. In verse 19 and chapter 2 and verse 1, we have the Holy Spirit quickening us, giving us life when we were dead in sins. We were unsaved. We hated God. We were enemies of God. And the Spirit of God has changed us, writing His laws upon our heart, giving us eternal life. And all of this works so that when this world is over, all of God's children will be gathered together with Him in glory. And there is no separating us from the love of God. It doesn't matter what happens to us in this world. Persecution, pandemic, personal sins, Christ saves His people from their sins. And so as we read, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of of sins according to the riches of His grace. As Jesus said in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Me. We do not go to the Father. We are not enabled to stand before Him in glory because we joined the right church. 
because we had the right baptism, because we kept the right communion, because we said a certain prayer, because we lived a holy enough life, because we kept the Ten Commandments or any other thing, we go to the Father through Christ. He says in John 14, 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Now that takes a little bit of clarity in our day and age because the word mansion to us means a great palace of a house. Now by the way, I think most of us here, the homes that we live in are equal to or on par with many of the palaces that people lived in back in the old days. You read about the palaces of David and the palaces and the castles in these walled cities. We probably all live in a house that equates to the palaces of men back in the Old Testament time period. We live in giant houses compared to what they lived in. But the word mansion here is actually a French word that means a room. That's why it says in my father's house are many mansions. How would you fit a bunch of mansions in one giant house? Because the word mansion here means room. 1611, it's a French word. It means room. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Whither I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Now, I don't know about you, but if I set out to go to a place I've never gone, I need to know how to get there before I leave. This is why we have GPS. After getting lost about three times on preaching trips, I decided to invest in GPS. Now, we're talking about 10 years ago or so. I'm heading back from a preaching trip in North Carolina, and I let my poor old dad drive, and he's not paying attention which way to go. He knows he's got to go around Charlotte, get on the interstate, and drive that way for a few hours, and we're supposed to be heading from Charlotte down near Atlanta to catch the bypass and go north. Well, all of a sudden, we pass a sign that says, Welcome to Augusta. And I think, wait a minute. Augusta? Now, we're not anywhere near where we're supposed to be. I think it was, we actually passed I-20, somewhere near Augusta. And I'm like, I-20 is straight through Atlanta, and we haven't hit the bypass. Dad, where are we? I'm wondering, are we close enough to a beach that we can just stay overnight here, but we were not. So then we hit I-20. We know where we're going because that goes through Birmingham, and we're from Birmingham. So anyway, we make it home. Next trip, I go on out there. We missed the exit. Actually, we got off at the right exit to stop at a restroom, got back on, kept going, ended up, you know, crossing the mountains nearly to Nashville. Yeah, so Brother Ben bought a GPS. Thomas is like, Lord, I don't know where you're going, let alone the way. How am I supposed to know where you're how to get where you're going if I don't even know where you're going. Jesus tells him, If you had known me, you should have known the Father also, and from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. We went through this passage the other day. But in the midst of this conversation, Jesus tells him the way. Now, where is it that we're going? Our Father's house, in which are many mansions. How do we get there? I am the way. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Not religion, not personal righteousness, not any other thing, but Christ Jesus is the way to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Thinking about forgiveness 
and the totality of it in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and my favorite verse, verse 21. You know, I have to fit this into every sermon. If I don't fit this into every sermon, I'm disappointed. I have it on a plaque on the wall in my office. For he hath made him to be sin for us. This is referring to Christ being made the sin bearer upon the cross. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ suffered on the cross for our sins. And as he suffered for our sins, we read in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Father has laid on him, Christ, the iniquity of us all. His iniquity, or excuse me, our iniquity was laid on him. He had no iniquity of his own. Our iniquity was laid on him. He bore it as if it were his own. He died as if he were guilty, though he were not. And he satisfied the Father's wrath that we deserved. Understand, a single sin is all it takes to be severed from the presence of God for eternity. What do we learn in the Garden of Eden? God says, do not eat of this fruit. If you eat of it, you will die. Adam eats of it. You think, well, that's not a big deal. It's a bite. It's a bite of food. But God said not to do it. Because he did it, and God said not to do it, it was sin. Sin entered into the world and death by sin, according to Romans 5. Adam and all of his posterity was plunged into sin. And the wages of sin is death. One transgression is all it takes. Is that all you have? No. I would be willing to bet that you and I have all committed multiple Multiple sins even today. Have you thought an angry thought? Were you impatient with someone? Are you parents that got kids ready? That is probably true for you. We sin. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Because of the transgression of Adam, the original sin. And yet... The Father laid the iniquity of all of the sheep of God upon Christ Jesus. And upon the cross, when he died for us, he suffered death for us under the wrath of God as if he had committed our sins, though he had not committed a single sin, and gave us his righteousness. You might wonder, how do we know if, if God the Father accepted that offering? He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. You look at the empty tomb in Jerusalem and you can understand that the Lord Jesus Christ has taken away your sins. Christ arose again and because of that we know that our sins have been taken away from us. Our iniquities were laid on him. All we like sheep have gone astray, and he hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you're a person who struggles with guilt over your sin, I want your heart to be comforted today. 
first of all, let me say that the lamenting that you do in your heart, as you mourn your sinfulness, do you feel bad when you do things that God says are wrong? That lamenting is a good thing. You know, being sad is something that the world does not want for you to experience. Do we not go to great lengths in this country not to be sad? Now, if you deal with something like chronic depression or bipolar or schizophrenia or any other mental illness such as that, please take the medicine that your doctor gives you. It's intended to help you. But we don't like to be sad. We don't like any form of discomfort. Go down the pain relief aisle at Publix or CVS or Walmart. Think about all the different therapies that we've invented to alleviate pain, and that's a good thing. But guilt and lamentation, weeping, mourning over our sins, that's something that the world around you says that you don't need to do that. No, here's therapy, or here's a way to to feel better about it without thinking about it or confronting it. But I want to tell you that if you mourn your sins, that is a good thing. Because only a regenerated soul will mourn over their sinfulness. The sacrifices of the Lord are a what? Broken and contrite heart. If you mourn your sinfulness, God resides in you. The grace of God has arrested you. His laws have been written on your mind. And you mourn over your sinfulness. Now, if you mourn over your sin, I've got medicine for you that's a whole lot better than an ibuprofen. What can take away that pain? It isn't a psychologist. It's not a psychiatrist. It's not a doctor. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you mourn over your sinfulness, praise God you're a grace-changed individual. I've got the balm of Gilead right here. I've got the medicine. I've got the wine that makes the heart merry. I've got the oil that can anoint your head. I've got the medicine that God has given you to lift your spirits as you mourn the sinful, sinful things that you've done in your life. Lament over sin is a good thing. On my outline, you know, I give a one-page outline per hour to hour and a half of talking. But if it makes it on there, it's something I really want you to know. And on my notes today, this is in bold italics. I don't want to miss it. A genuine contrition over sin is an excellent evidence of grace. If you genuinely lament your sin, that is an excellent evidence of grace. Now, you notice that I used the modifier genuine. There are people in the Word of God who lament the circumstance, but not the sin. And there's a difference. Judas Iscariot was called a devil. Judas Iscariot is called the son of perdition. Judas Iscariot seems to be, from divine revelation from Scripture, a wicked man. He was not a child of God, by all indication from Scripture. 
After he betrays Christ for 30 pieces of silver, he tries to undo it by giving it back, and then he goes and he hangs himself. He wasn't contrite, but he was regretful. He repented himself, which means he regretted who and what he was and what he had done because he understood the circumstance. I'm not talking about being sad that we got caught. You know, we can all be sad that we get caught. There are times that my children have done things and gotten caught, and they weren't sad that I was disappointed, but they were rather uncomfortable when I latched hold of their arm and got a hold of the backside or took away a phone or a screen or a tablet or going out with friends for a period of weeks. They might regret the situation, but that's not the same. I hope they feel bad because they disappoint. I hope that that when my children do something wrong, that is the number one thought. Dad, I'm just so sorry that I disappointed you. But something tells me losing the smartphone for a week hurts worse, right? When they were toddlers, it was getting smacked on the rear end, but kind of grew out of that. A couple of them about bigger than me anyway. But I pay the phone bill and... I control the front door, who goes in, who goes out, and all things such as that. There comes a time that you absolutely lament hurting your parents' feelings. That You grow into that, I believe, especially as a grace-changed individual. But I'm talking about genuinely lamenting over your sins. Simon Magus was a wicked man. In Acts chapter 8, he tries to buy the gift of the Holy Ghost from the apostles, and Peter says, your money perish with you. I perceive that you're in the bonds of iniquity, the gall of bitterness, and you should pray, peradventure, God forgive you. Peter doesn't know what type of a man he's dealing with, but he perceives some negative thing about Simon Magus. Simon goes on to form Gnosticism. They went out from us because they were not of us, the Gnostics, the Antichrist. The man literally founded a religion John called the Antichrist religion. It's a pretty bad guy. He persecuted Christians. He called himself the Son of God, claimed to be the physical incarnation of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. This is a bad man. And this man tells Peter, Will you pray that none of these terrible things come upon me? He had no contrition of sin, but he didn't like what Peter had told him about it. I'm talking about a genuine contrition of sin. It is, the, it is one of the most excellent evidences of grace in your heart because there is no fear of God before the eyes of the natural man. Natural men don't lament their sinful condition. Now I'm going to give you an example of forgiveness. I told you to turn to Luke chapter 7. I hope your finger has been in Luke chapter 7 for the past 40 minutes. Because now we're here. This is the best example that I know of from Scripture of forgiveness on display, both in a doctrinal sense, a legal sense, thy sins be forgiven thee, but also in a practical sense of Christ comforting and assuring the trembling, troubled heart of one of His children. Forgiveness legal, forgiveness practical. Now, you and I can be forgiven of sin, but the mood that you're in doesn't change unless the realization of that forgiveness comes to you personally in your conscience. 
Now, I can know that Jesus took away the sins of his people, and I can know that I believe in him and I love him, but unless I feel to be forgiven, I am of all men most miserable. Haven't you been there? Haven't you been there in your life? When you know it is a theological fact, but you don't know it right now in here. This woman that we're going to read about in Luke chapter 7, before the end of this experience, she knows it in here. That's what gospel preaching is all about. Now, if you're visiting with us today, I hope the first part of this message tore us down and made us tremble. And the next half of this message, because we preach an hour and a half, just kidding, no, it's going to end in about 15 minutes. I hope the next portion that we talk about gives you such comfort and strength that you leave this place understanding that no matter what else happens in the world, I can come to Christ and wash his feet with my tears. I can beg unto him and he gives me the sweet assurance of grace. This is in Jesus' personal ministry. A Pharisee invites Jesus over to eat. Now what's interesting about this, this man's name is Simon. Another occurrence such as this happens in John chapter 12. In John 12, a woman named Mary comes and washes Jesus' feet, or rather anoints his feet with ointment and dries his feet with the hair of her head, much like what will happen in this experience. And then an additional time in Matthew chapter 26, this happens. Matthew 26 may be the same occurrence as John chapter 12. At minimum, I believe this happens twice because here, this is earlier in Jesus' ministry, it happens in the house of a Pharisee. In Luke, it happens right before the Passover, right before the crucifixion. And that in Matthew 26, if it's the same occurrence, then it would be occurring in the house of Simon the leper. Here we have Simon the Pharisee. It's a different, different individual. It seems to be a different timetable. seems to be a different event. Some commentators make this one and the same, but I believe that these are different events. A Pharisee invites Jesus over to eat, desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he sat down to meet. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the way people sit down to eat in the first century, we have a lunchroom in there and we've got all these tables and chairs and we pull up a chair under the table and we enjoy eating with one another. But the way that you would sit at a table and eat in Jesus' day, the table would be low to the ground. You wouldn't necessarily have a chair. You would go down to your knees and you would pull up to the table and your feet would be where? Well, they would be behind you. So they're all sitting on their knees around this table and they're eating. Maybe they kind of lay over on their side as their knees begin to be tired. They may fall back and, and rest. But... It isn't the sort of table scene that we commonly see today. This explains why in verse 38, this woman stood at his feet where? Behind him. His feet are behind him. So this woman isn't even in front of him doing what she's going to do. She's behind him. She doesn't even have the audacity to be in front of him. Because she's ashamed of who she is, but she knows that her only hope is in this man that is in this room eating with this Pharisee. 
As we think about the context of this before going right into the story, the last thing that happened before Jesus went into this house was people criticized Jesus for being a friend of publicans and sinners. In fact, one of the themes of Luke's gospel is how Christ was the friend of sinners. Now, if you came to church today and you thought, I'm going to go to church because I'm more holy than other people, you probably came to the wrong building. But if you came to church today because you thought, I am a sinner, I have no hope except through Christ, the only way I'm going to be with God in glory is through the forgiveness of that man, and I am unworthy to be before him, I believe you came to the right place. Luke's gospel emphasizes Jesus' friendship of sinners, his love of sinners, his receiving them and loving them and forgiving them and caring for them. We've got all the parables of the lost coin the lost sheep, the prodigal son, over and over and over, the publican who prays and won't even lift up his eyes to heaven as the Pharisee prays and is proud within himself. Luke emphasizes this. You know Luke is referred to as the beloved doctor? You kind of wonder if this man has the heart of a physician. He wants to bring healing to people. And he knows that what we are afflicted with, our sickness is one of sin, What then do we need as the medicine as we struggle with the affliction of sin, but the sweet message of the gospel, the message of forgiveness? And so Luke emphasizes that. Matthew emphasizes the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Mark emphasizes action. And immediately is the word, or anon, over and over in the gospel of Mark. Immediately, immediately, straightway is another one. They go from one action to another action. John emphasizes the sovereignty of God and salvation. Luke here so many times emphasizes Jesus' interaction with people who knew that they were sinful and lamented and mourned over their sins. By the way, I believe that we should find our primary audience among people who lament over and mourn over their sin. I was listening to a lecture recently on Baptist history, and it was a lecture by a non-Baptist While other orders of faith many times had state power or authority or some sort of privilege in a society, he said Baptist history is very hard to pin down because they always labored among the poor, the afflicted. And so they don't have the history books in antiquity the way other denominations do. Maybe as an old Baptist church we could find a great audience among those who are poor in spirit and in the things of this world. After being criticized of being the friend of sinners, Jesus goes into this Pharisee's house. He sat down to meet. Behold a woman in the city which was a sinner. Now that statement right there, first of all, everyone in the world is a sinner. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So any woman who ever walked into any building, behold, there came a woman which was a sinner. But Luke is emphasizing something about her. This woman more than likely earned her living in a way that was sinful. What a juxtaposition between the two people before Jesus. You have a woman who earned a living in sin, who comes in weeping over that, so sorrowful at everything she'd ever done, and a man who thought he was elite, 
a Pharisee, the who's who, the doctrinal, orthodox, conservative, religious, elite of first century Judaism. Which one of those two people would you have expected to be the one that Jesus would have spoken highly of? The way we look upon the world, it would have been the Pharisee. He was the who's who of Judaism, of religion in that day. Do you notice when Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, Matthew 23 is an example of this. He said that they were a generation of vipers. They were outwardly religious. They were a whited sepulcher full of dead men's bones. They looked holy, but on the inside they were ravenous wolves. And yet here we have a woman who was making her occupation in sin, and she's the one that finds this blessing from Christ. My mind makes me think of Rahab back in the Old Testament. Of all the people in Jericho that were saved, she justified herself, that is to say she declared herself righteous by her works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. She receives those spies. She sends them out. She was Rahab the what? The harlot. Perception is not reality so much of the time. And so many of the times we find God's grace in strange places. Places we don't anticipate. We need to remember that. As his people, as his church, as those who share the gospel and attempt to encourage and help and convert. We find grace in places that we don't think to look for grace. Behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner... She earned her occupation in a very sinful way, and you know what I'm talking about. She went into this house. She knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster box of ointment. Other occurrences of alabaster boxes of ointment in Scripture tell us that this is a very expensive commodity. When it happens in Matthew 26 and in John chapter 12, which again is probably a different occurrence, people like Judas are angry because, as he said, this could have been sold and given to the poor, but in actuality, John chapter 12 says he was actually a thief and he carried the purse, and so he wanted to sell it so they could put the money in the purse so he could take the money from the purse and put it in his pocket. It's expensive. How did she get the money? Well, she was a sinner. She stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head. So the first thing she does is she cries so bitterly, so fervently, so emotionally, that his feet are soaked. Have you ever cried so much that water pours from your eyes? She's in the presence of her Savior and she knows she's a sinner. She washes his feet with her tears. Now I want you to remember the first century is not like it is today. If all of us took our shoes off and our socks off, of course if you're a Winslet kid you may be barefoot, that's just the way it goes, but the rest of you here that are civilized and not feral... I swear, I'm sitting in my office this morning. Rachel's one of the first people here. Micah walks into my office. I look down and he's barefoot. Son, put on some shoes. 
He goes, oh, if you're civilized and you wore your shoes and socks to church today, you know that your feet are probably not that dirty, but they walk on dirty streets, they wear sandals, their toes are open, their feet are exposed to not only the dirt, but also the byproduct of all the animals that travel up and down those roads. His feet would have been a mess. And we know they were still a mess because as Jesus begins to rebuke this Pharisee, he tells him, you didn't wash my feet. His feet are still messy. And this woman washes Jesus' feet with her tears. And then she dries them with the hair of her head. A matted mess of hair. Tears, dirt, filth. And then she kissed his feet. You might think that's gross, but that's one of the most genuine acts of worship that we read in the New Testament. To kiss his feet after walking through everything that life put before him in that day and age. After covering his feet with her tears and drying them with the hair of her head. You say, this looks absolutely insane. Faith does so many times. But this is genuine. It's real. She means it. She knows who he is. She knows what she is. We're never closer to Christ than when we put ourselves in the position of this woman. If you want to know what real discipleship ought to look like, this is it. It's embarrassing. The Pharisees of this world will judge you. They'll criticize you while looking down on you for everything you've ever done. But you know the one person in the room that doesn't criticize you? The Lord Jesus Christ. And that's all. That's all that matters. That's enough. And then she anoints his feet with the ointment. Now this Pharisee, and I've got to move on quickly for the sake of time. This man Simon, this Pharisee that invited him, he thought if this man were a prophet, he would have known what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. Simon knew what type of woman this was. She had a reputation that preceded her. Jesus knows what the man is thinking because he's God incarnate. He knows. Jesus answers, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. Master, say on. He gives him a parable. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him the most? Simon said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. Jesus said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. Now, is this to say that Simon had done less to offend God than this woman? No. But in his mind, he perceived himself as needing less forgiveness than this woman. This woman knew that her only hope was in Christ and might I hope that at the end of this message, we all leave today feeling more like this woman than we do Simon. He turned to the woman and he said, Simon, seest this woman? Do you see this woman? I entered into thy house. Thou gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but 
This woman, since the time I came in, has not kissed, uh, ceased to kiss my feet. Hath not ceased, meaning she's probably still behind him worshiping. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but she hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven. And that is present tense, are forgiven. This woman is a forgiven woman, and the grace of God that brought salvation is what taught her to lament over her sinfulness. But her perception was not reality until this moment. From this moment on, she understands that Christ has separated her sins from her as far as the east is from the west. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And by the way, Simon had just as much he needed to be forgiven for. One sin is enough. He had sin every single day of his life. It was just of a different sort. In his mind, he was probably guilty of the same sin. Jesus looks at this woman and he says, Thy sins are forgiven. Now, it doesn't tell us much about this woman and the way that she reacted to that. But I can tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, as Jesus tells this woman her sins are forgiven, she went away rejoicing. Don't you know that was the case? She went away understanding that though her sins be as scarlet, he has washed her whiter than snow. She was cleansed from her iniquity through the blood of Christ that he would shed at some point in the future in his ministry as he hung upon the cross of Calvary. He would die for her sins as well. And he would save her from her sins. The people that heard would say, who does this man think he is that he forgives sin also? That question was asked in the book of Mark, chapter 2, as four guys carry a paralyzed friend and break through the ceiling and lower him down in his bed to Jesus. Jesus beholds their faith. He says, thy sins be forgiven, speaking to the man. Oh, the Pharisees begin to question, who does this man think he is that forgives sin? And Jesus says, watch this. Man, rise up and walk. And the man gets up, he's paralyzed, and yet he walks. I bet he leaps, I bet he dances. Jesus looks at those people and he says, so that you would know that I have the power to forgive sins, I raised that man who was paralyzed, just so you know that I can forgive sins. Jesus says unto this woman, thy faith has saved thee, go in peace. Now this woman had been regenerated, which is why she's in there lamenting over her sins. But this same word save translates in other places as made whole and healed. There was deliverance that came home to her heart that moment. She was delivered from the burden in her heart of her sins. Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. As we end our message today, if you lament over your sins, that is an incredible sign that God has touched your heart. My encouragement for you is to come to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, He's not before you in the same sense 
But you can weep, you can mourn, you can lament your sin to Him even today. You can cry out unto Him. You can come behind Him, as it were, and wash His feet with your tears and dry them with the hair of your head. And the same thing that He said to that woman on that day will He say to your conscience today, Thy sins be forgiven. There is healing to the guilt in your conscience of your sin in the gospel message for you today. And we bid you come to him and make those mornings to him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful example of this woman. Oh, what boldness and faith it must have taken to go through the midst of these elitists that looked down on her, that judged her. Certainly their eyes had to be on her the moment she walked into that house. And yet she comes to your son and she weeps and she mourns and she kisses his feet. She can say nothing but to weep. But Lord, your son looks at her and he doesn't judge her. He doesn't condemn her because that's one of his children. We know so many times he told such as her, go and sin no more. And so, Father, we would say the same for all here to go and sin no more. But, Lord, we rejoice in the words that he told her, Thy sins be forgiven thee. We know any here that is in such a state that laments over their sins, that you would say the same exact thing to them, because it's grace in the heart that taught them to lament and to mourn. So, Father, we pray that the gospel would be the sweet message that would encourage them and lift them up and strengthen them when they find themselves feeling like this poor, struggling, sinful woman. We are all this woman, Lord. We are all this woman. And we pray that you would speak to our conscience that our sins are forgiven, that we have been made whole. We pray that you forgive us of our many sins. In Jesus' name, and amen.